this week we're going to visit with Dr. Phil Schubert, president at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. About eight years ago, Dr. Schubert undertook a major decision, transitioning his campus, a football campus, from Division II to Division I. I interviewed Phil about eight years ago with regards to that initial decision and what they were basing it on. Now I wanted to circle back and see four years into it how it was going and the kinds of transitions and changes that his campus has undergone. Here now my conversation with Phil Schubert. And welcome back to the podcast this week. I'm so glad to have you. My name is Karen Weaver. Today we're going to visit with a college president who has guided his institution from NCAA Division II to Division I, a move that many institutions in the recent economic times are considering. Dr. Phil Schubert is a 1991 graduate of Abilene Christian University and he never left. During his tenure, he has become president in 2010 and it's one of the largest private universities in the Southwest. Abilene Christian has experienced remarkable growth in facilities and enrollment, and Abilene Christian completed a $95 million expansion in 2018 that included a new science complex and an on-campus football stadium. The university also completed a four-year reclassification process to Division I under Schubert's leadership and is now a member of the Southland Conference. Most recently, the freshman classes have been some of the largest in the university's history, and graduate enrollment has grown dramatically during the launch of the new ACU Dallas campus. Dr. Schubert, welcome. Thank you, Karen. Glad to be with you. Absolutely. So you and I had a chance to talk, well, a good five or six years ago now, about this run-up into making the decision to leave Division II, to move to Division I, and I said back then on our podcast discussion that you were undergoing a real renaissance in the way you were approaching your entire athletics program. You moved from D2 to D1, and you were building a new football stadium at that time. And you told us a little bit about that transition a little bit, what that decision-making was behind the scenes. You said to us at the time that you thought this process would allow you to recruit student-athletes to have the Division I ability but also had the academic chops to remain at the institution. And you were concerned about the behaviors and the, the lack of stability in Division II recruiting. How's that looking today? You know, I think uh, many of the things, Karen, that, that we were forecasting that were justifications for the move, which was really bringing academic alignment between our student athletes and the rest of the student body. You know, back when I became president in 2010, one of the things I realized from my previous roles at the institution and within higher education is the tremendous impact that athletics has on an institution, both from an image and brand standpoint, uh, but also uh, in terms of just the, the culture and ethos of the institution. What we were seeing back then was a divergence uh, between the academic profile of our student athletes and that of the rest of our student body, uh, seeing it widen. And there are a lot of reasons for that, as you well know, with uh, the difference in academic standards between Division II and Division I. And so um, when I was asked after we made the decision to transition to Division I, the, the what the primary reason people would say, why did you make that decision? I would always say the primary reason we made the decision was academic. 
it was to bring greater alignment between the academic profile of our student athletes and that of the rest of the student body. And so it was a bit of a premise to say that, you know, if we we're going to be in the business of athletics, which is a big business, we spend a lot of time and a lot of money in athletics. I wanted to ensure that athletics supported the rest of what we were trying to accomplish as an institution, as opposed to acting as a drag upon what we were trying to do. And that was the case in division two. So fast forward, uh, seven years later, six, seven years later, what we're seeing is that playing itself out. We've had the highest collective GPA of our student athlete population than at any other time in the history of Abilene Christian University. Uh, we've seen uh, the highest graduation rates of our student athletes. We're seeing much greater alignment between uh, the, the academic profile of our student body and that, that of our student athletes. So we're feeling, at least from the academic standpoint, which again was the primary justification, the things that we predicted have absolutely materialized and, and that's very reassuring. I would imagine it is, and, and for the listeners who don't really understand what you were talking about, one of the things you told me back then was, if in, in Division Two, if you wanted to go and recruit a student athlete from a two-year college, you could get a student athlete who might have taken a semester course or two, and at the, and the most part might get Ds, and all the courses could transfer into the school assuming that Abilene Christian was willing to accept the lower grades and they could still remain eligible for the following semester. And then if they played one season and dropped out, there was no ramifications. What's changed in Division One about how that works? Well, as, as many would know, who are, if you are an institution and have any responsibility for the administration of athletics, what you know is that in Division One, if you want to go and, and recruit a student athlete from a community college or a junior college, uh, that student in many cases has to have completed that degree to transfer into a division one institution while maintaining, you know, a, a roughly a 3.0 GPA. Uh, so the, the standards for entry into a division one institution for the, when it's a student athlete who's going to compete and be eligible, they're tremendously greater standards, higher standards than what exists in division two. And furthermore, one of the things we love about it is uh, in Division One, you have criteria uh, and standards that you have to meet minimum thresholds for the graduation of your student athletes. Those right. did not exist in Division Two. So, as you noted, you could recruit a student athlete in Division Two. They come and play us one semester, drop out, and there's no ramification for that. That seemed very uh, counter to what we're trying to do overall as an institution. I.e., athletics could serve as a bit of a drag on what the rest of the institution is trying to accomplish. It didn't line up well, and in Division One. Uh, with uh, the measure, measuring of APR and all the things that go with that, you're, you're finding it that it has a much greater academic emphasis than ever existed in Division Two, and, and that still is the case. So uh, we love that, and we've seen that uh, provide a, an opportunity for athletics to really support what we're trying to do as an academic institution overall. Makes, makes a lot of sense. And as, of course, in Division One, you have initial eligibility and then you have continuing eligibility so that the students have to hit certain benchmarks as they move through. Otherwise, they're not able to get back out on the field of the court. That's, that's exactly right. And I'll tell you what we didn't know at the time <laughs> uh, was the new um, academic incentives that are being provided now as we're phasing into that in the NCAA Division One. And we love that. Uh, we, we feel like we're so well positioned. Uh, we love the fact that it supports uh, a more rigorous academic pursuit with, within the population of our student athletes. And uh, we, we sit atop 
the Southland Conference in academic uh, uh, accomplishment and achievement relative to those standards. We qualify in two of the three categories that uh, some of your listeners may know are, are being used to measure academic achievement among student athletes. And so we feel like this is a great uh, further uh, reinforcement of the importance that academics needs to play within uh, NCAA athletics. And, and for those who don't know, it's not just a pat, a pat on the back, good job institution, but there's funds behind it too. So absolutely. How do you think you might invest some of those funds? Well, I'd say we, we already invested prospectively. So um, I have funds that, that uh, I have as an innovative fund out of my office that I allow various places uh, in the institution for them to invest prospectively in things that reflect opportunities that maybe are outside of the budget process. It's a way to promote an entrepreneurial spirit. And so athletics came to me when I, when they, we realized that this legislation was coming through and we're going to have these incentives and I allowed them to, to make an investment out of these entrepreneurial funds that I paid for out of my office to invest, excuse me, in a full-time position, an additional full-time position specifically in athletics to uh, supplement what we were already doing uh, in academic support for our student athletes. We've directed that one position uh, for football because that tends to be one of the most difficult places for us to achieve uh, those academic standards, and it's proven to to be very effective. We had a 3.1 GPA in football this semester, which is by far the highest uh, on the institution's record. So very, very proud of our accomplishment there. And that's been part of what's helped us achieve those broader NCAA standards. And, and as you know, we will get a distribution that I think in the first year, it's all based on number of sports and scholarships, et cetera. But for us, it's significant. It comes close to covering the cost of a full-time position and benefits in the first year and has the potential to grow in years four, five, and six to being uh, four or five, six times that amount. The other thing that many people don't realize unless they're actively looking to move from D2 to D1 is there are a number of other NCAA grants uh, to fund positions and strategies that D1 has access to that D2 doesn't have access to. Have you leveraged any of those? Uh, we have. You know, our athletic director manages those various grant funds. There, there are several uh, areas where uh, you get these supplemental distributions that come from the NCAA uh, where we will use those directly to invest in the infrastructure and supporting our student athletes, predominantly academically, but also, you know, there, there are funds that we'll use to enhance our compliance efforts in other places. But it's, it's a great incentive uh, that the NCAA I think had good vision to begin to move into some of these areas beyond competitive success and provide funds to, to support our student athletes in what I would argue is their most important endeavor, and that is getting a degree. Right, right. How have you found um, growing your infrastructure in terms of personnel in the transition? How many, about how many more bodies did you have to add to, to be able to do all the things that come into compliance and financial reporting? and all the different part, moving parts that exist in a Division I athletics program? Well, the thing that we looked at very carefully when we were considering the move, um, and this is a case, the case, I think, in most conferences around the country, we, of course, were working with the Southland, but they were able to share the budgetary information from all of the schools in the Southland Conference. And so our task was with the conference staff to be able to put together some pro formas to say, we, we broke it down between salaries and benefits, 
um, operating and travel and scholarships. Those were the three major buckets of financial investment that we were able to benchmark. So we knew what the median investment, both in terms of numbers of people, but also dollars, number of scholarships, equivalents, as well as operating and travel money. And so we went into that with an initial goal to uh, peg our budgets in each of those three buckets at the median of the South and Conference. Uh, I wanted, if we moved in the South, and I wanted our folks to feel properly resourced, and that was the agreement we had was we'll, we'll progressively move to being at the median of the South and Conference. Now, we've since moved up from there, and we're in about the top third, which is uh, encouraging. But that was that's the way we tend to approach that uh, picture at our institution is being aware of what is the landscape from our peers within our peer group and being uh, recognizing that many of those schools have been competing and playing at that level for many years. And so you have to assume that there's some logic to, that has allowed them to arrive at the places where they are. And we started with saying, we're going to try to mirror that same thing. And so to answer your question specifically, we've probably added over the course of the past six years, my guess is maybe 10 to 12 positions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there's also some funding that, that sources, as you've noted here, but also some additional sources of funding that come from the NCAA uh, that, are, that will help provide the funds to, to, uh, to, to pay for those initiatives. So let's turn and look at how this is translated to campus spirit and enrollment and retention. What's been your, your take on how, how much your campus has changed in that six or seven year period of time? Well, you know, it, it's, so, uh, it's so interesting to look at that. I, I think I mentioned to you uh, in our previous call several years ago that um, once we had made the decision to move, it was by far the most uh, often discussed topic when I was out on the road with alumni mm -hmm. donors. You know, they, by a factor of 10, they're interested in talking about athletics, some aspect the move that is still the case uh, I, it'd be hard to characterize the level of excitement engagement pride that our alumni and donors have with regard to athletics we've seen tremendous amounts of funds uh, pour into supporting our our various sports so for example a great example of this is is in every sport uh, we provided a bit of a mini campaign with donors to uh, try to highlight the needs that we had in that program to position us to be able to compete what we said for a conference championship, which was our initial goal. Uh, and so in basketball, for example, we had the March Madness campaign. And we said, hey, you know, on the front end of this move, we want, to, we want our coaches and athletes to know we're going to support them with the investments they need to compete effectively for a conference championship, which would allow us to realize one of our big milestones, which would be to compete in the March Madness tournament, uh, in the NCAA postseason tournament, to have the visibility that comes from being on the bracket. Um, and we raised uh, several million dollars in that regard to help support uh, the different initiatives over a multiple year period. But one of the big successes was this past year, which was only our second year of postseason eligibility after transition, we had both our men's and our women's basketball team make it into the tournament. And if I understood right, uh, we were only one of four schools in the country that had both their men's and women's teams in the tournament. We were the only one uh, who, who had first-time teams on both sides. So uh, it was amazing. And, and did you fly to the games and go watch them play? Absolutely. You know, NCAA provides funds, you know, for the, for the travel. So we had a charter 
uh, plane and we took a bunch of donors and we covered, you know, the NCAA will give you a, an allocation for a certain number of seats on the plane and then you can sell seats to throw out the rest of the plane. Uh, and we did that. We went down and, and had a whole host of, fan, of fans that were there when we played Kentucky in the first round on national television, <laughs> CBS. And as crazy as it sounds, you know, we, we were on front page USA Today, you know, with our, with our men's and women's teams. It was, it was highlighted that we were, you know, making our, our debut, our first dance, if you will. And uh, later, you know, we got so much publicity. We had a firm that we hired who went back and chronicled all the different media mentions that we received during that roughly two-week period um, and came back and gave us, if you were to purchase this visibility from an advertising standpoint, here's the equivalent dollar value of that visibility. And it might be shocking to some to know, but it was $74 million. Wow. You know, I, I spend... 12 million a year on athletics to Adlin Christian. So the idea of having a value of street value of 74 million in publicity was just off the chart. But that experience um, was one of many, it was clearly the biggest moment for the, the energy and enthusiasm around athletics that we've seen since the move to division one. It's given everyone a taste of the opportunity that exists to rally your support and increase the visibility and brand value of the institution that comes through athletics. This might be a hard, a, a difficult question to a ask because answer because you're in a football-focused conference, not a basketball-focused co conference. Um, but I had a conversation with a president who really talked about the whole conference membership being in alignment with regards to non-conference scheduling in order to maximize <laughs> their their opportunities oh, yeah. to get on television and that type of thing. What kinds of conversations do you have about that at the Southland? Uh, we're having increasing uh, conversations. That's a very, very big issue on the basketball front. Um, and you know that well from your experience. But it's incredibly important to be strategic about how you handle your non-conference schedule uh, for the you know, power ranking uh, positioning, which ends up determining your seating in the tournament. So the Southland Conference has an automatic bid to the basketball tournament every year. We were, a, I think, a 15 seed last year. But that's going to be hard to win a game. I mean, it has to be a true Cinderella story and there's so much upside in winning a game. What you really need to do is try to position to be at a place where you can get an 11 or 12 seed. That non-conference scheduling has a tremendous amount of impact on ultimately where your conference is seen in the power rankings, which ultimately determines your seeding at the end of the year. So we're having an increased amount of conversation. We have an athletic director, at Abilene Christian that came from Murray State, which was a basketball conference. Um, and they had a very specific strategy over a period of years to enhance their position relative to non-conference scheduling. And it was very successful. And, and I hope that we'll be approaching something uh, very similar in the Southland. Now, how about as far as non-conference games for football? Is there as much focus on that? You know, there, there's not um, nearly as much focus in non-conference games for, for football from the strategy standpoint. I think that the focus in the non-conference games for football has more to do with the financial payout. And so many of, of our uh, F, at the FCS level, FCS level um, what, we, what we often do is strategically schedule non-conference games to help provide financial resources. So it, that's a, it's a big deal when you go and play an FBS opponent uh, you'll often be able to get, you know, four to $500,000 to play that game. And so for many of our FCS schools, 
it is important, uh, an important aspect of the revenue that helps us fund what we're doing. But uh, it is not nearly in the level of strategic uh, impact that it is in basketball. Right, right, right. Because so you don't, you don't have the same type of positioning in the rankings and the and uh, that 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 are so pervasive in basketball. Right, right, right. And and your goal is ultimately the FCS championship in in football. So who in your conference is your greatest rival? Uh, you know, they, we've got a really fairly even conference. You know, um, Sam Houston State has been a school from a football standpoint that. Um, you know, they went to two or three national championships in a row. Uh, they never could beat North Dakota State, um, but very few people can. So they've been a great – they've been a perennial powerhouse. And so I guess if you were to look over the last decade, they would probably be the school that, um, you know, has demonstrated the most success. But Stephen F. Austin has had years they've been great. Central Arkansas is another one. So, yeah, it's really uh, anybody can beat anybody on any given day. Right, right. Well, that's what that's what people like is parity. They just want a 50-50 chance at winning, right? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> well, so here we are six, seven years later. It's sort of been a, a real work for you, but a real, sounds like there's been a lot of really great things that have happened to the institution, to your athletes and your athletic program. What would you want to tell yourself looking back now that you wish you'd known at the very beginning of this process? Anything? Oh, yeah, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of things like that, which, which one of the things that I did not realize um, as much as I do now, I, I've thought about, I'm, I'm in my 10th year of being president, which makes me an old timer. Uh, it's about double the national average, I think, from the latest thing I saw in ACE. But if I look over the last 10 years, my presence and the impact, uh, major impact on the institution, the best things that have happened, and I try to put that top three list together, the move to Division One athletics is number one on the list in yeah. terms of, of benefiting the institution in a whole host of ways. And we've talked about a lot of that here today. Um, but the things that I would, would uh, you know, I wished I would have known then is, is probably uh, how – what the return on the investment of support, of support for our student athletes, primarily academically. Um, I would have invested more heavily, more quickly mm -hmm. in that area. I think that um, I probably underestimated how difficult it was going to be for our coaches to win mm -hmm. and to really make the transition to understand the recruiting landscape at a different level. I think that was really challenging. I, it was hard for many of our coaches, and uh, we've had quite a bit of turnover, quite mm. frankly. You know, we're seven years down the road, and I think we have maybe two or three coaches that have made it to this point uh, through that transition. And that's a hard thing for an institution and an athletic department to have that much transition, your head coaches. But it's also an incredibly difficult thing to transition from Division two to Division one. And then finally, I think just the 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 – magnitude of investment and the need for very very meticulous financial management athletics is a fast-paced game where you can spend a lot of money really quickly and the need to stay very disciplined and focused um, and watch that carefully is something that's caught us a couple of times thankfully not in a huge way but uh, I wished I would have paid a little closer attention to it on the front end yeah well that's all it's good advice for everybody 
And the last thing I want to ask you about today, which is, of course, one of the hottest topics in all of college sports, which is names, images, and likenesses. I mean, do you have oh any thoughts goodness. about where, uh, <laughs> where ACU might go in that and what, um, what your thoughts are about the evolution of this in, in Texas and in nation, the nation? Well, you know, I'm, I'm on the uh, President's Forum at the NCAA and some of the Southland Conference representative a presidential representative and the this whole situation is incredibly concerning to all of our um as i sit around that table with the other presidents it is it's one of those situations where we certainly understand the desire to benefit athletes in ways that are appropriate and so the the logic behind what uh, under undergirds the, the move in this direction is understood. What none of us can figure out is how in the world that the working group that the NCAA board has appointed to kind of come back and provide parameters for how this is going to take place are going to be able to put a process and regulations together that come anywhere close to managing safely the level of manipulation that is likely to be part of this process mm -hmm. and be its undoing. And so I think if my understanding is in April is when the working group is supposed to come back with some initial recommendations. And I think all of us are on pins and needles waiting to see it. Can they even get close to having the kind of safeguards that would allow this to be truly a healthy thing for NCAA athletics that doesn't get manipulated to the point that it becomes so uh, devastating to the nature of, of the amateur athlete in college athletics. And I think all of us are doubtful about that. It's a very, very concerning landscape. Do, do you feel that the, an antitrust exemption would, would solve problems or create more? Oh man, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't have an opinion on that, Karen. I really don't. I've been back and forth on both sides of that. And uh, I think that, that I would lean towards saying an anti an antitrust exemption would help. I, I think that I know that's the direction that the NCAA is going. And I, I think that all things considered, that that's a good direction. But I don't think it addresses this other issue, though. Mm -hmm. And that is how do you provide even if you get the exemption, how do you provide the kind of regulatory environment and processes and safeguards that keep bad actors from manipulating the system and creating a whole host of distortions in this arena uh, with an attempt to get a competitive edge. And we know when people are given an opportunity to get a competitive edge in, in the business of athletics, they'll go to great lengths to capitalize on that. And it's difficult to see how in the world they're going to prevent that from happening. Well, I think you're right. I think a lot of people are on pins and needles right now, too, trying to figure this out. And it's certainly uh, uh, the Senate uh, has put some pressure on uh, the NCAA this week by having a hearing and saying, look, we're paying attention here. So that creates an additional level of pressure that we haven't yeah. seen in the NCAA. Well, Phil, I think I might be losing you, but I want to thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Today. Was that today or yesterday, or do you know it, any of the outcome of that? It was, it was today. It was today, and I watched the hearing, and uh, uh, we're losing. Can, I, can you hear me okay? I can, yeah. Okay. So the hearing was today, 
and I watched it. It was about two hours, two hours plus long. And my sense was that the uh, Senate is going to pay attention quick to what's going on in April. Uh, and quick, clearly, uh, Bob Bowlesby, who's the commissioner of the Big 12, came on and said, we'd like safe harbor here. We'd like uh, the Senate yeah. and uh, the government to give us some breathing room here. And I didn't get the impression that the Senate was willing to give them very much breathing room. And I think that adds to the pressure of April. You bet. You yeah. bet. I'm, I think uh, it's going to be a really interesting and very delicate landscape to figure out how to traverse this uh, to end up at any kind of place that's workable. You know, I just, I just think there's so much about that that is open for, you know, manipulation. When you start to, to create an opportunity where student athletes can benefit financially, people are going to be so creative in coming up with every possible way that they can work that system to their benefit. And that's just unfortunate, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a really tough situation. And I certainly uh, will be paying close attention and maybe you and I can have a further conversation about it once we kind of know where the, everything's headed. You bet, you bet, would, would enjoy doing that. Uh, well, Phil Schubert, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been great to catch up with you and, and see how the, your dreams sort of evolved over this period of time. Best of luck with the rest of the academic year. Karen, it's been a pleasure. Uh, appreciate your work and look forward to talking again. Thank you. Take care. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000 foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I will strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and intercollegiate athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on Forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.